ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hi there. Welcome to The Country Hour for another week. I'm Selena Green. Coming up, what's been your reaction to the news that the European Commission has extended its authorisation of the controversial weed killer glyphosate for another decade? Well, let me know your thoughts this morning, sorry, this afternoon, I should say, by talkback number 1300 222 or you can text them to me, 0467 because in a moment you'll hear from some farmer groups about this. And also in this next half an hour, after some tough years, Australia's dried fruit producers are tossing up whether or not to significantly increase the levy they pay. We're trying to save costs for growers trying to come up with new varieties, trying to look where we can mechanise things. And, of course, all this costs money. It's R&D, research and development. That's to come, as I said. But first today, as we reported on Friday, the European Commission has extended its authorisation of the weed killer glyphosate for another decade. Authorisation in European Union countries was set to expire on the 15th of December after a one-year extension was given last year. Our farmers globally were worried that the Commission wouldn't renew its approval given strong pressure from anti-glyphosate campaigners and claims that glyphosate is a health hazard. Well, CropLife Chief Executive Matthew Cossie says without access to the chemical, which kills a broad spectrum of weeds, food production would have been affected. Glyphosate's a crucial tool for farmers here in Australia, but uh, equally in Europe and around the world. So it's good to see that uh, the European Commission's uh, made the decision, which is based on all the independent expert scientific advice. The one great advantage we have in Australia is we have an independent science-based regulatory system. doesn't involve politics, just made on data and uh, expert assessment. The European system gets a little more convoluted than that and while all their independent agencies endorse the uh, uh, approval of glyphosate uh, and the European Commission's own expert committees have, it then also nominally needs to be approved at a political level and they've struggled even to get that meeting to have quorum. So the European Commission's decision is a good common sense one and one that uh, confirms uh, the uh, importance of glyphosate. And this, I believe, follows the assessment by the European Food and Safety Authority as well. That's right. Their Food and Safety Authority, their uh, chemical expert committees, um, along with all the independent scientific regulators within each of the EU countries have all uh, done the assessments. Really, it's uh, just a a matter of uh, good common sense uh, decisions. One, obviously, very important for European farmers, but also uh, important for Australian farmers so that we don't see European sort of uh, agricultural politics get in the way of any of our export markets. On that note, what implications would an EU ban on glyphosate, for example, have on the Australian grain growers? Well, I don't think we've seen European politics has got so ridiculous that they ban it, but it would uh, cause some uh, difficulties. That would be going to uh, products that are banned in Europe um, means that there's challenges with exporting to that market for Australian farmers who do use it. This is one of the really important issues, particularly around trade and particularly while the EU 
over recent times and, and recently in an attempt to get a free trade agreement, have sought to enforce farming practices on farmers in Australia and around the world that they wish to impose there. And that's something that we need to be very cautious of because, as I said, in Australia, the decisions made here are made by independent expert regulators based on evidence. And as we've just seen earlier this year with the uh, ABARES report, Australian farmers are some of the best practice and uh, most uh, environmentally sustainable farmers in the world. So we need to protect good agronomic policy here and we can't let trade issues warp that. So I think that's why uh, overall, uh, both for Australia and for Europe and globally, it's good to see some common sense finally come through in the European Commission. Last December, it was extended by 12 months. This time it's a 10-year agreement. What, why do you think there's been such a large jump in how long this is going to last? I think the European Commission and all their expert bodies recognise there's uh, no reason for it not to be extended at least 10 years. And really, it should just be indefinitely. All the evidence is there about its importance, its safety and why it's a critical tool for farming. And I think uh, really we're just seeing them move through their political process. It is, again, one of those bizarre things that happens in European politics that they have what should be pure, independent, scientific decisions uh, get caught up in politics. And again, one of the advantages we have here in Australia that we see less of that with our own expert independent regulators. The World Health Organisation, though, their cancer research agency has ruled it is potentially carcinogenic, though. Does that concern you? The uh, research there uh, does the research on all sorts of products. It also identified, you know, aloe vera as a possible carcinogenic and the like. That's not about the actual safety of products that contain glyphosate, though. Every independent expert regulatory body around the world has confirmed its safety. That's the research that goes on about the glyphosate and why it needs to be regulated. And so that's the thing that often gets lost in that research. That's why we do have these products heavily regulated. And that's why they are safe to use because they're controlled, the quality is controlled, how they're used and following label instructions all goes to ensure that there is no risk with these products. That's CropLife Chief Executive Matthew Cossey speaking there with Jane McNaughton. Well, in its renewal for the use of glyphosate, the European Commission did stipulate some new conditions, including the setting of maximum application rates. The EU is a major export market for Australian producers and Andrew Whitelaw from the market analysis company Episode 3 says the extension is good news for Australian producers that use glyphosate. Look, I don't think it's a major surprise that they continued the approval of it. I think it's a chemical that hasn't yet got any sort of replacements available yet. So I think they are going to keep it. Uh, I do think it's sort of interesting because they do have other policies on the way which will reduce the... uh, uh, the amount of pesticides, fertilisers used in Europe and increase the amount of organic farming, which sort of flies in the face of this because, well, they are going to be using less, which means they'll produce less. And if you look at Australia as a country, we import about 14 to 15% of our agricultural chemicals from Europe. The majority of them come from China, which we know in the past has been a problem in terms of supply chains. If Europe stops producing as much because they're not using as much locally, it will mean that we'll be far more reliant on China again on another agricultural product which we've had issues with in the past with DAP, MAP and other sort of uh, fertilisers. So that's one potential change I guess for the Australian market? That's a potential change and and we're talking sort of 2030 onwards but it's not that long really till till 2030 at this point. That's true. Uh, Any other impacts to the market do you think this will have? 
No, I think it's just, look, it's probably one of the, the good things is that it means that it's a product that's approved in Europe. So that means that we shouldn't face any issues using glyphosate on our uh, products. We won't get any of that green diplomacy where we're told uh, we can't use glyphosate on our products because it's still a product that is used within Europe. The problem we would have had is if Europe banned it for their farmers and we were still allowed to use it, there's potential we could face tariffs get most like for our canola which is our biggest agricultural product into europe yeah i guess what do you think the long-term future for glyphosate is then look i think it doesn't necessarily matter about the science of it i think that's the issue we have is that over time we we may see some of these products coming out of the marketplace but i think they can only come out the marketplace if there's replacements you can't just go decide to go all organic or whatnot you've actually got to have something to replace it because we still need to produce enough food and glyphosate is one of the tools in the tool chest that we have Andrew Whitelaw there speaking with Annie Brown. Well, some producers say they're keen to move on from synthetic pesticides. Tammy Jonas is a livestock producer and butcher and president of the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance. She says the EU's decision is a step backwards, but it does include a restriction on farmers using glyphosate as a pre-harvest desiccant, which could reduce its usage in Australia. We were at the Biodiversity COP in Montreal in December where the global biodiversity framework was agreed upon by all of the nations of the world. And Target 7 actually calls for a reduction by half of the risk from pesticides to um, environment and human health. And so this, to me, seems to be counter to that, given that those countries were in those meetings and agreed to that target. So it seems pretty retrograde to be extending one of the most ubiquitous chemicals in the system instead of trying to dial it back. Coming from a food sovereignty and an agroecology perspective, we sort of reckon there needs to be a transition to a totally different way of farming. I do think there's a responsibility on all of us, but in particular governments, to show some leadership in how to transition farms to more biodiverse production methods using integrated pest management. You know, there are lots of tools in the organic farmers' toolbox as well, even though some of those may be imperfect. You have broadacre organic farmers not using glyphosate, so we know it can be done. And I would say that we need to be making that transition rather rapidly, given the biodiversity loss and climate change from the production of of, um, agrochemicals as well. Given that the decision has been made now by the EU, what kind of knock-on effects do you expect that to have in Australia? Some farmers were relieved that it means that they maintain markets in the EU to to ship glyphosate-treated produce to. I did see there were some prohibitions included in the extra 10 years, including not being able to use it for a late harvest desiccant. So I know that's how it's used sometimes in Australia, and that might change some of our practices towards more environmentally sound practices as well. It just might be a slower transition than some of us had hoped. That was Tammy Jonas there speaking with Elsie Kennedy. It's 15 minutes past 12. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, JBS plans to have two shifts at its processing plants across the country next year, and the company says it's very positive about the local beef sector. In a webcast from Brazil, the CEO of JBS, Gilberto Tomazzoni, had this to say. We are very bullish in terms of Australia. We are now working one shift. We are planning for the next year to be working two shifts because the availability of cows, the market demanding. We are very bullish in terms of our Australian operation. 
JBS says the net revenue for the third quarter of 2023 was $19 billion and the net profit for the company was $117 million, reflecting the lower beef prices compared to last year. Chief Financial Officer Guillaume Cavalcanto detailed the results from the Australian division. Despite the decrease in consolidated net revenue, the EBITDA margin grew 3 percentage points to 6.6% in US GAAP. This improvement mainly reflects the lower purchase price of live cattle, given the greater availability of animals due to the more favorable cycle. According to Meat and Livestock Australia, the price of live cattle in Australia fell 49% year over year in the third quarter. Gilberto Tomazzoni was also asked a question about the herd size in Australia and whether the current El Nino was affecting processing operations. Australia obviously is having a nice run and uh, you've mentioned the decline in cattle costs around close to 50%. We're going um, through another El Nino phenomena and obviously the implications from El Nino tend to be more dry conditions down in Australia. Any early signs of, of some sort of a, a herd liquidation because of that what has been accelerating that capital supply or the lower cost? Or is it really just because of everything that's been rebuilt from the last uh, recovery post-drought situation some, some years ago um, that you now just have a healthier availability on cattle? The situation in Australia, they have rebuilt it, the herd, and the availability of the herd is because they passed two two, three years rebuilt earth. Now the availability earth, the price and the availability the earth, the cost, because the cycle is a positive cycle. So we, I mentioned before, we are working one shift or now we are preparing for the second, but nothing related to El Nino. El Nino could be an, an issue, uh, but so far it's too early to say something about that. There was also a question during the webcast about the market in China. Export demand, and in particular from China, you called out some pressure on export prices from China. So I guess I'm curious what what your expectation is going forward as we roll into 2024 in terms of China export demand, and if um, you're expecting a recovery, and what your level of confidence in that is. When you talk about China, it was specifically your question. We see that the demand from China keep growing. If you look for the per capita consumption in China, it's very low considered other markets with the same income power. That means that red meat is an aspiration in China and it keep growing. When you talk about other proteins, that other proteins that there is different dynamic. Uh, China will buy just of uh, a specific cuts, but not the structural. Beef, we see that will be keep growing. And uh, people say, no, oh, that the market, the economy is not the growth uh, as before, but look, it still grows 6%. And the size of the, the, the economy is much bigger than before. We are, very, we are very positive with China, not just for next year. We are positive for long terms in terms of beef, that the demand from the uh, beef is structural and keep growing. 
That is Gilberto Tomazzoni, who's the CEO of the big meat company JBS, speaking on a webcast from Brazil on the latest three-quarter results where JBS recorded a profit of $117 million, And that report came from the ABC's Tony Briscoe. It's 20 minutes past 12. You're with Selena Green on The Country Hour today. Well, this month, dried fruit producers will vote on a proposal to almost double the levy that they pay to fund more research into mechanisation and new plant varieties. Australia's dried fruit industries had a tough few years. Last season, growers produced their smallest harvest in more than three decades after months of rain brought an influx of pests and diseases. Elsie Kennedy has this story. A few decades ago, sultanas were the bread and butter of horticultural production in the Sunraysia region of northwest Victoria. Now, just 3,000 hectares of the crop is grown here, after many growers pulled out their vines and replaced them with wine grapes in the 1990s and 2000s. Last year, dried grape production hit a new low of just 12,000 tonnes, down from more than 90,000 tonnes in the early 90s. But demand for dried fruit is growing, and the dried fruit industry says new technology could hold the key to increasing production and attracting more producers back to the crop. Here's Dried Fruits Australia chairman Mark King. We're trying to save costs for growers, trying to come up with new varieties, trying to look where we can mechanise things, and of course all this costs money. It's R&D, research and development. Dried Fruits Australia is proposing to increase the levy that growers pay from $11 to $20 a tonne. That's quite a steep jump. Do you expect there'll be much resistance from growers? I'd be very much surprised because I think they realise that $11 is just not going to keep us going forward. You're a grower yourself. Mechanisation is something that you think should be prioritised when it comes to how to spend that extra money. Why is that? I mean, labour's just expensive. It's hard to get. One of the inventions that we come up with last year, which was through the R&D committee, is a pruning machine that runs along and goes in and out when it's supposed to and cuts off one side of the cordon. Now, I think it's something like about $1,100 a hectare. We've figured out that that's what it saves a grower, which is a big saving. It's a huge saving and, and it's also a time factor. It gets you across the patch so much quicker. And that's only one. I mean, I know that we're looking at a weedicide unit that instead of when you're spraying out the middle of the rows, it only sprays where there's green or weeds. You can actually program it to just spray the weeds in the middle of the row. Things like that. I mean, anywhere where we can save some labour. And how, how is the industry going broadly? Like as a producer, are you confident in the returns that you're getting that there is a strong industry there going forward? Oh, for sure. The actual world industry usually has about 1.2 million tonnes. These are round figures every year. Last year, 880,000 tonnes was the world, is all that was grown in the world of um, dried fruit. I've never known it to be down that low. So, you know, supply and demand, the price is strong. The prices in everywhere else in the world uh, are good and high, which is great because they won't be trying to push um, fruit into Australia at a lower price. It is. It's actually you know, quite buoyant and it's quite um, positive at the moment. We've got some big growers or big corporates that are coming into the um, play, I think they can see that dried fruit's wanted all around the world. It's getting less of it and it's getting more people. And I'm quite confident that it will keep getting going that way because the US, who was one of the largest producers, have come down by 150,000 tonne. Turkey was down by 180,000 tonne last year. Every country was down. I mean, we were too, but it's not because of the vines in the ground. It was mainly because of the um, disease issues that we had last year. Where with those other countries, it's because a lot of grapes have been taken out and been put in with something else because they're old and people have gone away from it in those countries.
That's the chair of Dried Fruits Australia, Mark King, and he was speaking there to Elsie Kennedy. And that vote uh, by producers is on the 30th of November. Uh, Talking today about uh, glyphosate and your views on that uh, extension by the European Commission for another 10 years, allowing the use of it. Uh, Scott has hopped on the text line. He says, ban it. He says, the woman who spoke against glyphosate made sense, says Scott. You're welcome to add your thoughts to that text line and that phone number. But first, we'd better go to the Weather Bureau where Hannah Marsh is our forecaster today. Hello, Hannah. Hi, Selena. What's the story as we kick off another working week? Yeah, well, we've seen some high cloud about the northern agricultural area and the south of the pastoral districts, some low cloud about the coasts, and we've also got some cloud just starting to convect in the far northeast of the state. And we expect that to continue. We do have a trough still lingering through the far northeast of the state, which will produce some uh, possible showers and thunderstorms as we head into the afternoon and evening period. Uh, otherwise, we're just looking at the chance of seeing a light shower about the southern and far western coasts and other than that we're really just looking at uh, mild temperatures in a onshore south uh, easterly stream with a high pressure ridge to our south so having a look at some of the temperatures that we've uh, seen so far today it's been up to 20 degrees at Sejuna, 19 so far at Port Lincoln 20 so far at Wyala 26 at Port Pirie 28 at Cooper Pedy 29 at Woomera 31 at Broken Hill 24 at uh, Renmark 26 at Clare 22 at Murray Bridge uh, 19 at Highmarsh Island 20 at Kingscote and 20 at Mount Gambier. And really it's a very similar story for the next few days just with that trough lingering through the far north of the state with possible showers and thunderstorms and remaining in that onshore flow uh, further south. But then as we start heading to the latter part of the week that trough uh, over eastern states will start to intensify and gradually drift back into South Australia. So we'll see the showers and thunderstorms gradually pushing southwards and westwards, particularly on Thursday and Friday. So we're looking at the showers and thunderstorms really about central and eastern parts uh, by Friday. In terms of rainfall totals, as a cumulative, generally we're looking at less than two millimetres about southern and far western coasts, uh, increasing to two to ten millimetres about the central and eastern parts, uh, particularly on that Thursday and Friday period. Uh, with some localised falls of 10 to 30 millimetres possible. We're seeing falls of 20 to 40 millimetres aren't out of the question also with thunderstorms. Coming back uh, to the current period, we the only warnings we have at the moment are marine wind warnings. Uh, we've got that for the Spencer Gulf for today. Then as we head into tomorrow, we're looking at extending to the Adelaide Metropolitan Waters, the Upper West Coast, Lower West Coast, Spencer Gulf, Gulf St Vincent, Investigator Strait and the Upper Southeast Coast as well. And having a look at temperatures, as I mentioned, we are looking at them remaining pretty mild on this in this uh, south to southeasterly flow. So for Tuesday, we're looking at a maximum of 21 and partly cloudy at Sejuna, 
20 for Port Lincoln, getting up to 23 with winds increasing, but a mostly sunny day at Wyala. Uh, winds increasing also and 26 for Port Pirie, 31 at Cooper Pedy and Woomera, getting up to 33 degrees at Broken Hill, uh, 31 at Renmark, 26 for Clare, 22 at Murray Bridge, uh, 20 degrees for Mount Barker, 19 at Victor Harbour, 20 for Kingscote and 20 also at Mount Gambier. And in terms of the warmest day, particularly in the south, we're probably looking at Friday uh, before that trough does move uh, further through and uh, we start tending towards a wet weekend. But looking uh, further afield, Selena, as we start looking at sun Saturday to Monday, we will see those showers and thunderstorms start to contract to uh, the east and um, just maintaining those isolated light showers near the western coasts. All right. Thanks for that, Hannah. Enjoy the rest of your Monday. Thank you. Same to you and your listeners. Hannah Marsh, our forecaster today at the Weather Bureau. Let's have a look at the western inland parts of New South Wales. The forecast for tomorrow, both the upper and western districts are looking at partly cloudy days. Now, in the upper western district, there is a slight chance of a shower in the afternoon and evening, and there is a chance of a thunderstorm. Northeasterly winds, 15 to 20 k's now. They're going to become light in the middle of the day coming east to southeast east 15 to 25 k's now in the early afternoon. Overnight, down to around 17 to 23 degrees. Daytime temps, 32 to 37. For the lower western district, as I mentioned, partly cloudy, medium chance of showers in the east, slight chance elsewhere, and the chance of a thunderstorm. Northeast to southeasterly winds, 15 to 20 k's now. They'll tend southeast southwesterlies, 20 to 30 k's now before the dawn. Overnight temps between 14 and 19. Daytime temperatures will climb into the low to mid 30s. It's just going on half past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Hi there. Happy Monday. Great to be with you. Now, do you know whether or not there's any asbestos on your property right now? Apparently, asbestos-containing materials remain hidden in an estimated one-third of Australian homes today. That's one-third. That's a lot. And that includes a lot of regional properties, farm buildings. But did you know that asbestos can also naturally occur in certain rocks and soils? You'll learn a bit more about that in a moment. Also coming up, it's not uncommon to see solar panels in paddocks these days and farm buildings and water pumps, but what about solar panels actually shielding certain crops from the harsh sun and storms, all the while generating power? Well, Adelaide researchers are trialling this right now for vineyards. Uh, It's something that can also possibly translate in consumers improving their perception of those wineries, um, possibly be willing to buy more wines and possibly even buy them at higher price points. More on that in a moment as well. My talkback number today is 1300 222 or you can send me a text on 0467 922 But first up, we need to get news headlines from Matt Coleman. Good afternoon, Matt. 
Hello, Selina. In the news this afternoon, a 21-year-old man from Padthaway has been charged over the deaths of two people in a crash in the southeast on Sunday. The man's ute collided with another four-wheel drive at Willaluka. The two people in that vehicle died at the scene. Detectives converged on a house at Morford Vale in Adelaide South this morning after charging a man with murder last night. Police say a 39-year-old woman from Encounter Bay was found unresponsive at the property on Wark Court shortly after 7pm. A 40-year-old man living at the house was arrested and is expected in the Christie's Beach Magistrates Court today. And Kelly Bayer-Rosmarin has resigned as Optus CEO. Her departure follows the network outage on November the 8th, which left 10 million customers without access to phone or internet services. More news at one o'clock. Thank you, Matt. Matt Coleman with those headlines. Well, yeah, do you know if there is any asbestos present on your property? We don't use it anymore, but there's still plenty of asbestos out there across Australia. Pretty much anything built before 1990 could still contain it, posing a risk to those wanting to demolish or renovate those structures. And there's also the issue of naturally occurring asbestos in certain rocks and soils. We even used to mine it here in South Australia. It is National Asbestos Awareness Week. In fact, the whole month of November is Asbestos Awareness Month. And there's lots of advice out there on how to protect yourself, your loved ones and your workers as well. Brett Baker is president of the Asbestos and Hazmat Removal Contractor Association of New South Wales. Hello, Selena. Thanks for having us here. Sounds like there is still certainly plenty of asbestos potentially out there. So if we step out into a typical rural area, maybe onto a farm, as far as structures go firstly, where typically might you come across asbestos these days still? There is a lot of asbestos right across Australia. Typically one in three houses um, prior to that time contained asbestos. Now, you, you'll find it in around about 3,000 different building products. And if I just went through a, just an ordinary home, you could have an asbestos roof or even a farm shed um, or any, any built structure. When you're saying, where, where can you find it um, on the farm? Well, any structures that have been man-made that have been built um, using any form of cladding or insulation um, will typically contain asbestos, as I mentioned, typically one in three. So if we, if we gave you an example of a, of a farmhouse um, or even a shed, it could be the roof, um, can be the, the guttering, the, the downpipes, the eaves lining, faces, underneath tiles as well if it's, um, if it's got a cement or concrete roof, um, even on the, on the verge cappings under the sides, uh, wall cladding, um, window corking, so the mastic around the glass, um, inside in any wet areas, um, even on your floors, your, your actual vinyl floors, glue that holds the vinyl floor down, um, packers in between your piers and your floor joists, and the list just goes on. So as I mentioned, there are around about 3,000 products, so I could sit here all day and give you a list of <laughs> any, anything can really contain asbestos that was um, used for building the actual structure and the linings for a, um, for a structure. Yeah, definitely getting the idea that it's pre- it could pretty much be in anything. You also mentioned there earlier, though, naturally occurring asbestos, and this might be less well known that it can what naturally occur in certain rocks and soil as well. Well, that's right, Selena. Asbestos is a natural product, so it's basically it's a rock, um, and, it's, and there's different types of rocks um, that will contain, you know, your, your common asbestos, which is your blue, your brown, your white asbestos, and it can be found. There are generally belts and strips 
around the nation that, that have um, asbestos. Asbestos was mined in South Australia in Robertstown back in 1894 and up until around about 1950. Robertstown, Truro and Lingdock areas around about 50 to 120 kilometres north of Adelaide actually mined approximately 1,000 tonnes of chrysidolite back in those years. Right. So that said, um, I guess asbestos, perhaps not a concern until you start moving it. So if you're destructing a property, if you're doing some renovations, or if you are perhaps digging up that soil, this is when problems can occur? Well, it's, it's when it becomes airborne. So even if you aren't disturbing it, the wind can disturb it. Um, you know, if you, if you have any weather events um, or even fire and that type of thing, um, it can actually disturb the asbestos without you actually physically touching it. But, yes, if you, do, if you do physically touch or if you have machinery that will go through and break up the asbestos, anything that can generate fibres or generate dust from that asbestos, that's, um, that, that's when it can pose an issue. So if you have asbestos around the, around the home, you have typically two classes of asbestos. You'll have what they call a bonded or non-friable asbestos, which is typically doesn't become airborne too easily. And if you have that, I'll give you an example. Wall sheeting, for example, um, asbestos-containing wall sheeting. If you keep that well maintained by keeping it painted, that, that typically will then encapsulate the asbestos and, and it doesn't become airborne. Whereas if you have a friable asbestos, um, which is an asbestos dust or something, can you, if you can just picture if you had some in your hand, if you could pulverise it in the palm of your hand, it becomes um, like a crumbled or powder. Um, that's what you can typically class as friable asbestos. That relatively um, becomes airborne relatively easily and that can pose, certainly pose an issue and it's, and it's much more difficult to contain. So it's not just when you disturb it, it can be just by by erosion, it can be just by natural consequence with, um, you know, with wind, um, that airborne fibres can exist. I'm speaking with Brett Baker. He is with the National Asbestos Awareness Campaign. This month, November, is Asbestos Awareness Month. So what is generally the advice around handling this sort of stuff? And that's going to differ as to whether it's in um, a building structure or whether it's in your soil. So... Basically, you need to you need to do planning, and that's what a lot of people, um, you know, it's around their house. They they typically don't plan as much as what they would if they were doing a, a job, you know, for somebody else. It's um, she'll be right, mate. They'll get in there and they'll and they'll just get stuck into it. So it really comes down to planning. What I always suggest to people is use an experienced licensed contractor uh, to undertake any work involved with asbestos. Now I understand that's easy to say. Um, you know, sitting back, you know, behind a desk to say that. But some circumstances you certainly can do that much easier than others. Now, the much easier is, is in the built environment, so in a home. Um, it's much easier to get a licensed contractor to come in and to remove the asbestos. Um, whereas I understand with naturally occurring asbestos, if you're in a farm environment, you're certainly not going to get contractors in to undertake farming for you. Um, so you're going to do that yourself. So it comes down to proper planning and putting together what is typically known as an asbestos management plan. Um, An asbestos management plan will help you identify where the asbestos is and what the hazards and control measures are to mitigate somebody breathing in um, asbestos and also cross-contamination. You don't want to then do work out in the field, get asbestos all over you and go back to your loved ones at home and bring asbestos into your house of somebody doing the laundering of the clothing, um, you know, kids coming up and giving you a hug as soon as you get home, then breathing in the asbestos. There are, there are all these scenarios where 
you can try and mitigate um, that cross-contamination of asbestos. And it's a matter of really planning. And an easy way for people to get more information about this would be um, at the website asbestosawareness.com.au or even speaking to your local council um, or, or your regulator, for example, Safe Work South Australia. If you do get your soil tested and there is a presence of asbestos in your soil, um, is that sort of pretty much, you know, walk away from that or there are measures that you're aware of to, to remediate, remediate or safely deal with those soils? Well, it depends. If your entire area that you own contains asbestos and you, and you need to make a living from it, I understand the implications that people will continue to work um, those properties. But if you had the choice of working on a property that or an area that didn't contain asbestos, obviously you'd be working those areas. But it really comes down to putting in appropriate procedures um, and being extremely mindful that the dust is hazardous. And so taking precautions such as wetting down areas, um, so doing it whilst, I guess, when, when, when it's raining. Um, and, I, and I understand this is very easy saying you're sitting behind a desk because it may not be practical in the practical sense out there to actually to do that. Um, but then you need to look at things like using an enclosed cabin where you can for your equipment, putting your cabin um, air conditioning on recycle, uh, closing the windows. Um, in, in extreme circumstances, um, you can also wear personal protective equipment such as respirators or coveralls. Um, so if you do have any dust that does come into the cabin, that you're not breathing it in and then your coveralls can be disposable and you can, and you can put them in a bag and appropriately wrap that and leave that in a contaminated zone prior to then, say, for example, getting into your car or going, going into the house um, with your loved ones. So it's a matter of, of putting together a management plan, being aware of where the asbestos is, un- understanding what activities you could be undertaking that could be generating dust and how to mitigate and, and how to suppress the dust and how to mitigate um, that dust from getting onto your clothing and, and being breathed in um, with simple things such as dust suppression. Um, if you have a water cart or a hose, to be able to wet down areas when you're doing things um, or being mindful to do these things when it's not really windy, um, understanding which direction you're going to be travelling to avoid you know, being in the dust as you're, as you're travelling around the, the paddock um, and that type of thing. So there's just really comes back to planning. And there's a few uh, resources on asbestosawareness.com.au um, that would be worthwhile looking at if you were in those circumstances to be able to make you just a little bit mindful and aware of what you're going to be um, doing when you're disturbing asbestos and what you can do to mitigate those risks. Do you know, if, are there any implications then, depending on what you're using that, that land or that soil for, if it's for grazing or for, for cropping, that there could be then implications for, for what you're producing off that land as well with that asbestos going through sort of the chain? No, there's no known, there's, there's really no known uh, plants that will basically pick up the asbestos and, and you know, and, and cause any kind of health risks associated mm-hmm. with, um, that I'm aware of, associated with eating or even with the, with the animals, you know, eating grasses and whatnot associated um, with naturally occurring asbestos on a property. Um, I guess the only thing you need to be considerate of is if you are removing any plants, crops or whatever the case may be and you're getting any dirt and dust and um, going with the crop, then there's the potential issue there. But more than likely, um, a lot of farmers will not be removing their soil when they're um, removing the crops. Mm. And so it's only if the soil was to go with it as well, if you're going to be pulling out some root-based plants or some roots of, of some plants and that dirt then that could potentially contain asbestos then then getting taken off site, which is typically unlikely because um, usually you don't have dirt going off your, uh, off your site. 
And just remind us again, I mean, a lot of us now these days are very aware of the horrific implications of exposure to asbestos, but just remind us, you know, why it's so important to reiterate these messages. It is something that can be quite devastating. Well, currently over 4,000 Australians die every year from an asbestos-related disease. Now, it's typically when people inhale these fibres um, that they get a, a, lung, a lung disease, such as mesothelioma asbestosis. And it's, it's, it's absolutely terrible that we still have this situation so many years of the legacy, so many years after um, asbestos was banned in Australia. But because the ingestion period is, is quite long, you know, typically 30 to 40 years, um, it's, it's really an invisible killer. And people just think, once again, they'll just have the should-be-right-made attitude and they don't worry about it too much. But what they're doing is they're giving a death sentence to themselves and those around them um, by not dealing with this product appropriately. Brett Baker, thank you very much for joining us on The Country Hour this afternoon. Thank you for your time, Selena. Most appreciated. Thanks. I was speaking there to Brett Baker. He's president of the Asbestos and Hazmat Removal Contractor Association of New South Wales, and he's a member of the National Asbestos Awareness Campaign, which is running uh, National Asbestos Awareness Week and month, which is the month of November. Uh, quite a few texts are coming through around asbestos. Uh, Robert on the text line says, what about asbestos roofs? I see many in towns that have degraded where loose fibres are visible. And what's the risk and why aren't they made to be replaced for safety? David's in Coonawarra. His text says there will always be issues with asbestos identification until industry adds a different colour to cement sheet products going forward. People cannot easily identify the difference at present. Uh, This text has come through. It says we pulled up our vintage caravan floor before realising it probably had asbestos in it. Just a warning and good heads up on that one there because uh, as we heard it's still or it could be in so many different places and maybe places we don't necessarily uh, initially think of. And Anne wants to know if perlite uh, can be manufactured from asbestos-containing rock. Very good question. And uh, I'm going to point everyone to the website that uh, Brett Baker mentioned there. It has a lot of fact sheets and information uh, and probably a really good resource if you do have questions um, or want some guidance. And it is asbestosawareness.com.au. That's the name of the website. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. And you're with Selena Green on this Monday and it's 15 minutes to one. Well, it's pretty common these days for businesses and wineries in particular to use solar power. South Australian researchers are actually trying to find ways of incorporating solar panels into the vineyards themselves, not just to cut costs, but also protect the vines in increasingly harsh climates. The hope is that vitivoltaics could protect vines and cut water use while also generating cheap power without the need for extra land. And it could even mean some more flavoursome and aromatic wine grapes, maybe. Adelaide University Associate Professor Cassandra Collins says the study will test the technology's potential benefits and any impacts on grape and wine quality. A lot of solar panel systems are separate from an agricultural enterprise, but with vitivoltaics, we're actually bringing the vineyard and the solar panels together and hopefully gaining some mutual benefit from having them together. So what are some of those potential mutual benefit benefits, but particularly from a viticulture perspective for, for the vines themselves? So what we want to have a look at, and we've got a pilot study set up at the um, Wake campus of the University of Adelaide, is to look at whether those solar panels can actually protect the vines during periods of high heat load, um, potentially even things like wind and frost, 
dust and, and other elements that the vines are exposed to. So solar panels may be a way to actually offer them a little bit of protection from those adverse weather conditions that may lead to a better quality outcome from the fruit that we're harvesting from those vines. So what are some of the answers you're hoping to gather from the research that you're doing on the impact of the vines, whether there's what any potential negative impacts, positive impacts, yes. whether that flows through to the, the quality of the grapes themselves? Yeah, exactly. So um, with this, there could be some detrimental effects or obviously shading at, at different parts of the, the day and during the season. So we need to see if there's any carryover effects from that. So grapevines, as well as many other um, crops, are very reliant on light levels and so shade can can be an issue. But at the same time, we have quite extreme um, heat load during the summer months and the way that these solar panels potentially could work is that we can buffer some of that and that could lead to better colour development, more positive flavour and aroma attributes in the fruit. These are some of the things that, that we'll be looking at with the team here at the University of Adelaide. We're quite excited about how we're going to look at that, but it's a very, very complex topic and what we've done with this particular recent funding is bring together a team across the university with wide-ranging um, expertise. So obviously we have our viticulture um, and enology team looking at the quality aspects and, and some of the logistics of actually having these two things combined in a vineyard, but also working with our business team and wine marketing teams as well as architecture and engineering and um, even experts in artificial intelligence. So we're trying to bring as many of those elements together to really look at this complex project and, and get the most benefit out of it. Because I understand while this isn't a, really an Australian first looking at this, it is done in other parts of the world? Yeah, so in the background we're also talking to some of our collaborators overseas. So there's quite um, a significant setup in Germany already and um, in France, in places like Bordeaux, they're also starting to, to look at this. One of the benefits of doing this here in Australia is that we do already have those extreme weather events. Um, that we can really test this and see what benefits might arise. That's Associate Professor Cassandra Collins from the University of Adelaide School of Ag, Food and Wine. One of her colleagues involved in the research is Associate Professor Armando Corsi, who is from the university's business school. I asked him how he was bringing his wine business background to this research. Me and my team, uh, with Dr. Rebecca Dolan and Alison Joubert, we're really focusing more on the marketing and consumer acceptance aspect of um, these vitivoltaic systems because this is not only is useful uh, from an energy-saving perspective, the fact that we have the panels really on, on the field, but they can also improve possibly the perceptions that consumers uh, might have about um, the wineries adopting uh, those systems. So um, we were really interested in understanding whether the possibility of consumers to see the systems in action to have a storytelling about the, uh, why uh, companies have adopted uh, this system. Uh, it's something that can also possibly translate in consumers improving their perception of those wineries, um, possibly be willing to buy more wines, and possibly even buy them at higher price points. Now, 
of course, we don't want it to be a greenwashing exercise. So, mm. of course, we don't want it just to sit there to kind of look and feel good. But we want to understand if the wineries that adopt this system, because they, of course, truly believe in the value of the system, actually they can also get some additional benefits, not just in terms of uh, having a saving in electricity bill, but also in terms of the overall perception that consumers will have for the wineries. Because I know that this is certainly a growing thing that consumers uh, in greater numbers want to know about the provenance of their wine, how it's made, how environmentally friendly and sustainable it is. But as you say, greenwashing is something that uh, consumers are also quite on to as well. So um, th- this is something that you're looking into as to how you know wineries might use this uh, as a marketing thing really um, for consumers looking for that kind of environmentally sustainable and more friendly wine. Uh, absolutely, yes. We Marketing is a lever, but I think there is more and more the idea of, I guess, understanding the marketing that is done for a purpose, not marketing that is done really for tricking people into a story that maybe is not there. Because I guess also more and more companies that will adopt a more greenwashing type of approach, whether we are in the wine business or really in any other uh, sector, will be discovered in no time with the access that we have to information uh, overall. But at the same time, I think it's important that if a winery, in our case, adopt a system that actually improves the overall level of sustainability of the company, that also they're not shying away from this. Because sometimes I think we have a bit of a tendency of maybe just do things because they're the right things to do, but don't tell people that were doing the good things. And so this is about now understanding and and, and showing to people that if you're doing something good, we're not just doing it because it's the right thing to do. And we can all agree on that. But also to use that doing thing for actually getting some benefits, as I said, in terms of the overall perception that people have of the wineries adopting the systems. That's the Associate Professor Armando Corsi there from the University of Adelaide. It's seven minutes to one. A few more texts and calls that have come in uh, regarding asbestos. Uh, Mick is in Elizabeth Park. He called in to say he used to live in Port Pirie, which has asbestos in many structures around town. But Mick said he'd not had much luck in the past with Safe Work SA helping when reporting asbestos. Uh, Peter's in Brooklyn Park. He says, about 20 years ago, I found an official US government website warning that all mortar in buildings constructed between 1918 approximately and the mid-1980s should be assumed to contain asbestos and treated as such. So the Australian company James Hardy was named as a major supplier in the USA of asbestos-containing building materials. You're with Selena Green. Well, uh, it's one of our country's most iconic brands. You might be wearing it right now. And it's been sold. Iconic Australian hat maker Akubra announced yesterday that the business had been sold to Tatarang, which is owned by mining magnates Andrew and Nicola Forrest. And Akubra has been run by the Keir family for the last 147 years, as Tina Quinn reports. It's an Australian fashion staple, famously donned by celebrities and prime ministers, and the new owners of Akubra hats, which have been handmade in Australia for almost 150 years, intend to keep it that way. Australia is the winner out of this. Australia keeps a legacy at home with an organisation who's so proud to be Australian, who's so proud of our nation, our history, everything which our diggers have fought for, the fact these hats are worn all over the world by our diggers, by Australians everywhere. If you want to be seen to be proudly Australian, then in an Akrobra is the way to do it. 
Mining magnates Andrew and Nicola Forrest over the weekend announcing their private investment firm Tatarang had acquired a Kubra from the Kia family after 147 years of ownership. The Akubra business started in Hobart in 1876, and the hats have been manufactured in Kempsey on the New South Wales mid-north coast since 1972. Over the last 50 years since its Kempsey workshop first opened, they've become a major employer for the region with more than 120 staff. Akubra's outgoing chair Stephen Keir said the decision to sell was a difficult one. Cited the COVID-19 pandemic as one of the main drivers.、Um, the first six months of the pandemic were really, really tough.、Uh, then it took off, and that's where we've been stuck. We've had it to a point, and we can't get it further. And、um, that's where we made the decision to look at our, where we can go, how we do it, and the world's out there. Most of our sales are in Australia, so Tatarang will take that further and do that. My sisters and I have talked for a long time about、um, where we can get this business to, and we've we've done a pretty good job to get it where it is now. And our forefathers have done a good job to where it is, but it needs more. And、um, we were just worried that we weren't going to be able to give it what it needs. And、um, Tatarang and the forests have proven、um, what they've done with Aaron Williams.、Um, we've dealt with Aaron Williams for, for a long time, and、um, it's just. The brand, we, we took ourselves out of the picture and thought, what does the brand need and what does the company need? And、um, this is a decision we came to. And、um, Mr. Forrest has talked to me over the years. Andrew Digger. Andrew's <laughs> talked to me over the years, and、um, he his passion for manufacturing here is what a place like this needs. Terence Hunt, a former Akubra employee of 53 years, told the ABC's Samantha Ayesha that he has many fond memories from his time at the company. I started in 1961. I retired as the company secretary in 1995, and retired as a director in 2014. So, what would you say would be the most rewarding time since your time at Akubra? There have been a couple of really good times. 1998 with the、uh, Uh, centenary and the、uh, Commonwealth Games in Brisbane—a dramatic increase in demand—and we rose to the challenge. Dropped off then, since, but since then it's, it's picked up. And with, the last one I was involved was selling into 23 countries. Bit, 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 bit large for a small Australian company. So, how do you feel with the new ownership? Well, I was saying to somebody, Charles Darwin never said. The survival of the fittest, he said, was the survival of those who adapt fastest, and this generation has adapted to the situation they're in now. There's certainly Mr. Forrest coming in with his assets that he's got available to back the company to do more and bigger things. Have to applaud that. It's good thinking. It's advancing in Cuba. It's advancing in Australia. And what legacy do you hope that the company carries on?、Um, Looking after the employees, looking after their customers, looking after their suppliers, and it's always been a family company, and that's been a very strong point. Andrew and Nicola Forrest have vowed to expand Akubra's operations, pointing to their 2020 purchase of the Australian boot label RM Williams, which has seen an increase to that brand's workforce of more than 500 people. The Forests announced they had separated this year, but continue to invest together through Tatarang. 
Tina Quinn with that report, and you can read more about the Akubra sale at abc.net.au forward slash rural. And, yes, we did have a text, a text in to point out that they do own RM Williams. And uh, in that story, uh, Mr T did mention that uh, he felt that the work that they'd done with RM Williams gave the family confidence about the brand's future and selling it. Uh, to the forest there. So, yeah, hop on that website, abc.net.au forward slash rural, and you can read more about that sale and heaps of other good stories as well. And you can find out why Californians are paying $14 a pop to eat Australian mangoes. That's a pricey mango. certainly a lot more than what we're paying right now in the supermarket for them. Thanks for your company today. Thanks to all who have uh, joined in by sending a text or giving me a call. I'll be back tomorrow to bring you more country out. It's time now to head to the one o'clock news. To get started with the ABC Listen app, find the app store on your phone, search for ABC Listen, tap the pink ABC Listen icon and download it. Congratulations, now you've got ABC Radio in your pocket. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.